Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. This morning, from the front lines of COVID-19 in America to New Zealand's least vaccinated region, a doctor who's just arrived in Aotearoa has a stark warning. I saw young people sick and dying, I saw old people sick and dying, I saw people that were healthy who had their lives changed because they couldn't breathe anymore and their lungs were ravaged. Fonterra's boss calls for more certainty on the next steps in the pandemic response and the future of Trevor Mallard. Well, well I, keep, I keep on hearing these sort of rumours that I'm about to be sent to London, 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 London or Washington. And my wife says that I've probably got the diplomatic skills for the Ross dependency. I'll be frank. We at Q&A had a bit of an internal debate about the show this week. Dozens more cases, record vaccinations, more protests, the Vaxathon. But we've made the decision this morning not to lead with COVID-19. We will get to the state of the pandemic shortly. But we feel it's at risk of overshadowing a critical moment in the battle to contain what scientists warn is an even greater crisis. The Climate Change Minister is preparing to travel to Glasgow for the UN Climate Conference. New Zealand will update its emissions reductions commitments at COP26. And Climate Change Minister James Shaw is with us this morning. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. Tēnā Jack. You will travel to Glasgow with the Global Climate Action Tracker, rating New Zealand's policies and actions to date as highly insufficient. That's worse than Kenya, worse than Nigeria, worse than Bhutan, worse than the Philippines, worse than Britain, worse than the EU, worse even than the United States of America. As New Zealand's representative, is that embarrassing? Uh, to a point. I mean, the Climate Action Tracker's report doesn't take into account some of our recent policy decisions, and of course it won't take into account any revisions to our target that we take into Paris. Um, Cabinet will be making decisions on that in the next few weeks. But if you look at our record over the last 30 years, it has been woefully inadequate when you compare it to the scale of the challenge and what's required. So I don't kind of bat an eyelid about that in the sense that we have known this for a very long time, uh, and I think it just underscores the importance of the work that we're doing in this government to upgrade the response uh, that we have as a country to climate change. Cool. There's actually, in some ways, some worse news. You know, you talked about all the countries that we're rated worse than. There's actually only one country uh, in the entire world that the Climate Action Tracker rates as having an adequate response, and that's Ghana. Uh, and so, you know, the, the kind of broad picture that it paints uh, not just about New Zealand, but about the entire the entire planet's response, is that it is woefully inadequate. Well, you are in a unique position of being able to make some change on that front. Uh, we know where you stand personally on this, but you're in a unique position at the moment as well, aren't you, as, as a minister, a Greens Party co-leader, who is trying to represent a Labour majority government on this issue. Let me ask, on the climate front, what is the bravest thing this government has done this term? Uh, in this term, I think it's probably the clean car discount. Um, and uh, the good news there is that that is actually having the effect that we predicted that it would, uh, which is that people are changing their uh, purchasing de decisions around their next vehicle. So there's been a huge increase in low emission and zero emission vehicle sales since that came in. But the government did cop an enormous amount of flack uh, for that decision. I think because uh, you know, it actually touches on people's lives. And whilst the vast majority of New Zealanders obviously want action on climate change and are concerned about uh, climate change, 
um, you know, when things start to rub up against their kind of home lives, sometimes people can get twitchy about that. This is the ultimate tension, right? P people say they care about climate change, but they don't want to do anything if it's going to impact them economically in the short term. How do we get past that? Well, I think there's a mythology, uh, actually, that's actually been the primary cause of our inaction on climate change over the last 30 years. And that myth uh, is that uh, action on climate change comes at the expense of the economy. If you look at the uh, Climate Change Commission's uh, report in May, it did two things. First of all, it said that the cost of inaction is greater than the cost of action. That's something that we've known about for quite some time, but they actually finally had some numbers to, to demonstrate mm. what that would look like. The other thing uh, is that in every area where we need to upgrade, whether it's mm. you know, waste or electricity generation or industri industrial heat or transport, you're talking about infrastructure. Uh, and so really the transition that we're looking at over the next 5, 10, 15 years is about a massive upgrade in our infrastructure. And all of that enables further economic development. But you're talking about macroeconomic shifts, and I'm talking about costs at the individual level. Am I right in thinking that the clean car discount or the, the other end of the rebate, the, the stick, if you like, for people who own utes, for example, has been delayed? Uh, yes, it was delayed, but that was because of COVID-19. Uh, just as with other parts of the government program, this latest Delta outbreak uh, has taken an enormous amount of resources the Climate change isn't being delayed, though, is it? To. Yeah. No, it's not, and I keep saying that, uh, you know, just because uh, I get a lot of criticism, particularly from the opposition, for continuing to roll out our climate change program when they say, you know, as, I mean, they quite mm. correctly say that there is a pandemic on. But ultimately, uh, the climate crisis hasn't gone away just because there is a pandemic. And as we get through it and we get vaccinated and you know, things start to return to some form of normal, mm. the climate crisis will be there waiting for us to respond to, just as it has been for the last 30 years. But not only that, I mean, the, the, the scientists have consensus on this point. We are at this critical moment in time where if we are going to restrict global warming to 1.5 degrees or even 2 degrees, we need to act now. And you say the bravest thing this government has done this term is the clean car discount. But even that, they are pushing down the road. Well, uh, ultimately, Parliament can only get through the business that it is able to get through when, when there is a pandemic on. And we've been on uh, severe restrictions over the course of the last eight weeks to deal with the pandemic crisis. That has meant that some things that were on the agenda have been pushed out. That's regrettable, but it's just a function of having to respond to the circumstances that we're in. Nobody wanted that to happen, Jack. I mean, that's just a, a function of having to deal with a pandemic crisis at the same time uh, as dealing with a climate crisis, a housing crisis and so on. Nobody except for the entire agricultural lobby, the entire opposition, every farmer in New Zealand. Sorry, say that again? Nobody wanted that to happen except for the entire agricultural lobby, the opposition, every farmer right. and tradie in New Zealand. 
Well, I, well, first of all, I, I would dispute when you talk about every farmer in New Zealand uh, that way. There are loads of farmers who mm. are really hungry for stronger action on climate change because they recognise that their sector uh, is probably the most exposed in terms of the risk mm. when you talk about the, the increasingly frequent severe and severe droughts and floods that are happening around the country and will you know, continue to increase. Yeah. Um, there are plenty of farmers who are, who are as worried about climate change as anybody who lives in a city. Yeah, talk to me a little bit more about that because you obviously um, you, you released a consultation document around emissions reductions this week and it, it included very little, almost nothing on agriculture and you've made the point that that is being done separately through the Hewaka Ekenoa uh, program. The agriculture sector is mm. making big changes but do you personally believe it can be trusted to make the changes that are of the magnitude to meet the crisis as it stands? Well, first of all, I think that they've got to. I mean, there's, none of us have any choice in this matter. You know, the science on this, as you say, uh, is accelerating and it's compounding. And every new report we get suggests that things are moving mm. uh, much faster in the, manner, in the, you know, in, to, in the direction that we don't want uh, than we would otherwise like. Um, I am frustrated that there are changes that could have been happening based on some very sound research that's occurred over the last 10 years that haven't been rolled out as extensively as they could, which would both decrease on-farm emissions and also uh, increase farm profitability. And, and I think that you know, we could have been doing a lot more about that over the last few years and working with the research and the science that we know works, even whilst we're working on other solutions as well. So looking a little more closely at the consultation document this week, the, redu the reduction plans in it have been slowed further in the next few years. The emissions plan actually falls short of your own targets. Is that a plan worthy mm. of this crisis? Well, Jack, one of the things I also said last week when we released that document is that that uh, document is not itself the plan. It is one of a number of inputs into the plan that we'll be releasing alongside the budget next year. Uh, and we are asking for people to, you know, to give us their ideas about how they think that we, that we should move on this, remembering that the government by itself can't fix climate change. This is going to take something that is enabled by uh, and encouraged by central government, but is going to involve every sector of the economy. It's going to involve iwi up and down the country, communities, mm. local councils and so on. So it is an all-hands-on-deck kind of effort, um, and we are asking everyone for their input. That's I guess why we call it a consultation document. Yeah, I know, but there is so much consultation on this subject. And of course we are talking about significant changes here, but you think about the consultation and cross-party dialogue mm. that was involved in passing the Zero Carbon Act. The Climate Commission had masses of public consultation. Now you've opened up another round of consultation, but at the same time you were saying, oh, this is a critical moment, we need to act really quickly here. At what point do you say, mm. actually, you know what, we have consulted enough on this, we need to make some bold calls? Well, Jack, if it was up to me, uh, I wouldn't have gone out again. But the government does have an obligation to consult people where we have policies that affect their lives and their livelihoods. Uh, there are things that are contained in this document that we have not consulted on previously. And we didn't want to duplicate the efforts of those prior uh, consultations that, as you say, the Climate Change Commission or the Productivity Commission had engaged with. Mm. And that's why some parts of the document are thinner than others, because actually that work has already been done. But there are areas there where, in response to the Climate Change Commission's uh, report, we did have to come up with 
new things that had not been discussed with the public before and to go out and talk to them about it. In decades to come, what do you think is the greater risk? That people will look back at this moment and say James Shaw was the climate change minister over this critical period. He went too hard. He couldn't bring people with him. He couldn't build enough consensus. Or is it a greater risk that people will look back at this moment and say James Shaw didn't have the courage of his convictions. He caved too frequently and easily on climate change. He wasn't prepared to make the bold decisions required. Jack, I don't think about this in terms of risk to my personal reputation. I actually couldn't care less about that in the grand scheme of things. I think the greatest risk is that as a country and as a planet, we fail to take action on climate change at the scale at which that challenge represents. And so far, our response here in this country and around the world has been woefully inadequate. That is why the work that we're doing is so important. That's why the, um, the conference in Glasgow is so important, mm. because we, the consensus around the Paris Agreement is fraying, uh, and we've got to get that show back on the road. Otherwise, we have no hope of limiting the worst effects of climate change. And this is really our last chance saloon. Let me ask James Shaw, the pragmatist, is it possible, do you think, is it realistic that we can keep global warming to below 1.5 degrees? It's an incredibly difficult challenge. I mean, the scientists themselves do tell us that we do still have some hope of doing that if we can take radical action in the next five to ten years to reduce the amount of pollution that we put into the atmosphere and to mm. take some of the pollution that we've already put into the atmosphere out of the atmosphere. And, and look, I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's probable. I think it's improbable. But if we don't try, then the results will be catastrophic. So we have to do everything that we can to try and limit global warming to one and a half degrees or, or less. Well, good luck in Glasgow. We will be watching with keen interest and look forward to speaking with you again soon. That is Climate Change Minister James Thanks, Shaw. After the break, Fonterra's boss on climate change and the economic response to COVID-19. And I think that the government now needs to shift their focus. Clearly, look, keep, keep an eye on the health aspect, but, but shifting focus now to the economic recovery. Kia ora iti, we welcome back to Q&A. Over the last two years, Fonterra's enjoyed an economic turnaround of sorts. And although the companies endured COVID-19 better than many, the pandemic has brought the collective a unique set of challenges. One News reporter Katie Bradford sat down with Fonterra CEO Miles Hurrell and began by asking him about the pandemic's impact. Yeah, we can't shy away from, from the fact it's been tough on them, really tough. Um, and as I say, we're feeling it a bit here in, in Auckland at the moment, what our teams have been dealing with for, for 18 months or so. Uh, quite frankly, the supply chain impact has been significant, as, as has been well documented right across the globe, not just here in New Zealand. Uh, from our perspective, we've actually got through it OK, but it hasn't been by a bit of extra hard graft, a bit of extra hard work. Uh, we've had to rework a lot of our, our orders as, as you plan something to go on a vessel and the vessel doesn't turn up or doesn't turn up in the port that you anticipated, uh, it's really caused a bit of grief again internally in our business. But uh, we, you know, we closed our year end of July with a record shipment for us, 2.6 million tonne of product exported from New Zealand, which is a record. Uh, and and uh, quite amazing actually when you consider that the supply chain situation that we, we're experiencing. Now we don't see any end in sight actually in the, in the near term. We're, we're thinking well into 2022 before we start to see the supply chain get back to some sort of form of normality. Have you worked with the government around that? I know they've had the supply 
supply chain logistics group, working group. Have you been involved in talking to them for issues around there, perhaps giving guidance or coming up with innovative ideas? We've certainly been giving them, them our views as to what, what we think needs to happen. Uh, but it, but as I think we've talked previously, we, we entered a partnership uh, in early 2010, 2011 with uh, Maersk and Porta Tauranga, uh, Kotahi, um, Silverfern Farms also, uh, and that has really helped us. So we saw, foresaw some real supply chain issues hitting New Zealand. We certainly didn't see the pandemic clearly, but we did see, you know, the bottom of the world, uh, a lot of uh, inefficient ports, you could argue, around, around New Zealand. We're a long way from our markets, and we're starting to sense that, that uh, international shipping lines may think twice about calling on New Zealand. And of course, from our perspective, that's it's, it's uh, something we couldn't ex expect or accept, rather. And so we went about uh, to put in place a, a long-term plan, um, and uh, we've really seen that uh, pay dividends this last 12 months. So, in terms of with the government and the economic impact of the pandemic, would you have? Do you think there should have been a working group between yourself and other business leaders with the government on issues like supply chain? But also coming out of this, what does the economic recovery look like? What do businesses need in the short term and the medium term? Yeah, well, I'm there, I mean, the government has been uh, listening to to some parts of of business. Um, they've clearly had their hands full with, with a health crisis, uh, but I think what, what you see now is a real need for the focus to turn to a more economic uh, rebuild for the economy. Uh, while the economy looks in, in, in pretty good shape as we sit here today, we all know that uh, this debt's got to be repaid at some point and, and you know, shops are closed around us as we speak, and so we've got, we do have to have an eye on that, and I think that the government now needs to shift their focus. Clearly, look, keep, keep an eye on the health aspect, but, but shifting focus now to the economic recovery. Well, are they talking to people like you enough and I hate to say it, but another working group with business leaders or whatever it is to get the ideas from people like you about how you help both small and large businesses? Uh, well, they are engaging, but I don't think it's at a point yet where we're starting to talk about what the plans look like for an economic recovery. Um, the, the, there have been some working groups to support them around the vaccine rollouts and, and how we go about that, and we've contributed to that, and we've had some support, and we've supported them in rural New Zealand in getting the vaccination programme up and running. Um, but from an economic economic standpoint, you know, they haven't really engaged in that at the moment. I think they recognise that and they need to, 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 to move the focus there now. What does that economic recovery look like to you? Well, I think it starts with getting these borders open, which again comes back to the, to, to the vaccination programme. But I think giving a plan to what people can actually work to, and I know they, they started to give some indications around what a reopening plan looks like, which of course was sort of put on the back burner very quickly with this latest round of, of outbreak. But I, I think we've got to understand you know, when the markets will open up, when, when New Zealand will be open for business. We need to get you know, foreign people in there, whether it be students or, or tourism, um, and, and allowing us as an exporting nation to get out into market freely. And it's, it's been a struggle for us. And on, on getting out to those markets, China, of course, remains your biggest market. How are the geopolitical tensions and issues that are going on with China and the rest of the world impacting Fonterra, and what do you do to ensure it doesn't affect the resilience of Fonterra? Yeah, well, well look, nothing's changed, really, from a, from a geopolitical standpoint from where we sit. I mean, we understand uh, that things go on around us and, and things that we can't as a business get involved in, but, but from where we sit, you know, I think we, we, we've got through it OK. I, I think that the the, the government is saying the right things and talking to, to their counterparts in the offshore market, so I'm feeling OK about it. I mean, it's a, it's a really important market for us, China. 
and clearly we, you know, the New Zealand government have a value set they want to stick by and they, and they will let their views be known. And I think the Chinese understand that, but at the same time we need to understand that the markets in which we deal with. And so, you know, having the right dialogue and, and as I say, we sit here today and, and, and are going okay in a, in, a China, in a market like China. What is Frontier doing to try and move away from some of that reliance on China? Are you still looking at options for that? Well, we're certainly not looking to get away from China. I mean, China has been a really important market for us and will continue to be uh, into the future. I mean, our job is to try and, you know, take the learnings from China and try and replicate that in other markets. But that certainly doesn't mean diminishing the importance of that market. It's hugely important to us, hugely valuable. We'll continue to invest heavily. In, that, in the Chinese market, uh, despite some of the geopolitical things you refer to. We're, we're really excited about the Chinese market, uh, the growth potential, and it plays right into where we want to go long term for us. And on that, on that, I guess, reset from 2019, all the work you've been doing since then and the financial recovery and so forth, do you feel like you have been able to regain some of the trust and confidence that was lost from shareholders and the public? Well, ultimately, you know, the shareholders and the New Zealand public will make their own calls. But, you know, we, we did set about, you know, quite a, uh, a tough task. If you go back to 2019 and see this is what we need to do in the next couple of years to give us the best chance of trying to turn the organisation around, turn it into a growth story. Uh, and to sit here, you know, a couple of months on from our results now, are really proud of what the team have delivered and I think it has given us that mandate and farmers have talked about giving us that mandate again to go and talk about what, what the plan needs to look like for 2030. So, I mean, ultimately they'll make their own calls, uh, make their own judgments, but, you know, the feedback that we're getting from farmer shareholders is really positive around, around the results just concluded, but also, more importantly, probably around the future. And on that feedback from farmers, there's a growing anti-government sentiment from farmers. Are you hearing that? Are you feeling that? Well, I, th I think what you're seeing from, from farmers is, and it's not just farmers, I think it's across the range of uh, stakeholder groups, is just yeah, the, the legislation that's coming down the path and, and it just seems overwhelming at times and they're dealing with a whole lot of issues in their own farming businesses, their own personal lives ultimately, uh, dealing with COVID and yet at the same time there's a whole lot of legislation. I think we need to understand, though, it's not just legislation that's coming down the line. It's actually customers and consumers are asking for things to be done differently. And our, and our farmers are best placed to do that. I mean, the pasture-based model, uh, the free-roaming cow system that we operate here in New Zealand puts us in a fantastic position, and our farmers know that. I just think there's a, there's a sense that there's a lot coming down and a lot coming down at, at pace. And the discussions we're having with government to support our farmers is let's work on a timeline that we all can work towards and it's, let's make sure that, that, the, that what's been asked for is backed up by science and not just uh, emotion. On sustainability, which is part of the 2030 strategy and all the moves you're making towards doing that, do you have farmers on board? What do you do to ensure they are doing their bit to protect the environment and protect Fonterra's brand? Yeah, well, I, I mean, f firstly, our farming business are intergenerational. So, you know, they, they want to leave the farm in a better place when they pass it on or, uh, you know, hand it across to their children or, 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 or sell it ultimately. Um, so, so our farmers understand that the, the aspect of generational um, looking after the land and the like. So we, when we talk about what customers and consumers are looking for, they get that. Uh, there are some we obviously need to work on, but the vast majority do get it, and you see that with the amount of investment they've made in their farms wanting to do the right thing. A few months ago, um, a, a few of us visited the Research and Development Centre at Fonterra with you and, and saw some of the things that Fonterra is up to that perhaps people don't realise you do. It's not just about milk and milk powder. You're talking about cheese lollipops and super stringy mozzarella and probiotics and 
other scientific products. Do you think you need to be doing more to tell people that you aren't just reliant on milk powder? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's always been a challenge for us. I mean, what, what you saw at our research centre is, is, not, uh, is, is not new. I mean, we've, we've been doing it for a long time. Um, of course, most of our markets are offshore. You know, 5 million people in New Zealand, uh, you know, 95% of our product is sold in, into the international market. So we are adapting our, our products and our, to, to suit our international markets. So it doesn't, they often don't resonate here. And if you did try the cheese lollipop, you'll understand that it's not really for the New Zealand palate. It's not, 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 not the best tasting um, thing in my mind, at least. And so when we try and talk about those things in a New Zealand context, it's lost a little bit. Yeah, there's more for us to do. And, 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 I, and I take that on board that we need to, to, to showcase a little bit more of that in, in, in our markets. And just lastly, on those goals around sustainability and, and uh, some of the climate change mitigation, what are your chances of getting to where you want to be in 2030 and what does that look like? There's a couple that we need to, to focus on uh, 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 post-farm gates, so in our own manufacturing. So we've already announced our decision to get out of coal by 2037. And 2037, for some, may seem a long, a long time away, but you know the number of facilities we have around New Zealand, that's physically as fast as you can actually transition uh, these boilers out if you do one, one or two a year. Always, we also need to invest in uh, water usage and water quality at our manufacturing site. So we've announced that we'll, we'll invest a billion between now and 2030 to, to do a lot of things around water and, and, and coal. The big one, is, of course, is, is methane. And, and there are no solutions out there at the moment that can solve methane for a pasture-based system. And, and we've just got to put some time, effort, uh, collaborate across government, industry, internationally to try and find some solutions. And, you know, if we can, if we can see a, a vaccination uh, for, for COVID get, get generated in the space of three or four or five months with the right minds and energy behind it, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we can solve things like methane with the right science and technology. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Coming up, a doctor who's just moved here from the heart of the pandemic in the US with a warning for New Zealand's health system. We did expect there would be some growth in the outbreak in recent days. Of course, it has been growing faster uh, than anyone would like to see. That was Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern on her small town vaccination drive. 130,000 vaccines were administered during Super Saturday yesterday, which I think most would agree is a stonking result. Dr Jeff Rickard has jumped out of the frying pan and into small town Taranaki. After living and working through the pandemic in Colorado, Dr Rickard moved to New Zealand five weeks ago. Now he's in Taranaki, pushing the vaccine message in some of our least protected communities. I began by asking him to describe his pandemic experiences in the United States. I think the best word is relentless. Um, the, 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 the virus is, is it, 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 it hits you hard and it doesn't stop. Uh, I saw young people sick and dying. I saw old people sick and dying. I saw people that were healthy who had their lives changed because they couldn't breathe anymore and their lungs were ravaged. Um, and the numbers just kept coming in and coming in and coming in. And that was at the height of it. Um, and then we got the vaccine and we actually did get on top of it for a little bit. And then we got a little complacent. Mm. And things changed once again. What, what was it like being in an environment like that where you were facing the worst of the pandemic, looking at a country like New Zealand? 
Um, I, I think you guys are in a very unique position. Um, we were watching from afar how your country handled it in closing it down. We used to watch the, the, the numbers across the world of who was sick, who was dying, how many positive cases there were. And New Zealand was always at the bottom of that list, and it was impressive. And we watched that. Even with not getting the vaccine, you were basically a country that could close it down and, the, and the, the people were willing to do what it took to help all their fellow countrymen, I guess we'll say. Uh, in the U.S., we, we weren't doing that, and that became frustrating, especially when we dealt with it day to day and saw the death and saw the people dying alone and that we weren't fixing it and we couldn't cure it, uh, to see another country try to do the right thing. And for, for a good long time, very successfully, it was impressive to watch. Mm. I know a lot of scientists and medical professionals were well aware of the risk pandemics posed in a theoretical sense. But can you give us an insight what it was like experiencing that in practice, seeing the pandemic unfold in the wards you served? It was... Uh, it was eye-opening. You know, you, you, we used to read the stories of the Spanish flu, for example, and how many it killed and when it killed them and, and how they tried to get on top of it and what it did to a country. And you don't really think it's going to happen in this day and age. And then we watched it happen, and it really was exponential. It was not like the occasional case that came in and occasionally a little bit sick. It really was, once it got legs, just like you probably watched in the news of New York, it really just kept going, and it was like a flood. Mm -hmm. that, it was like a tsunami, really, that we couldn't, that we couldn't control. And all we could do was, it, it felt like we were in survival mode, just trying to keep our heads above water. Why did you move to New Zealand? Um, that was one of the reasons. Um, we had also been looking for just a different quality of life. We were looking forward to a smaller country where it seemed that there was a better understanding or acceptance of a work-life balance. And it was also a country—America uh, is very divided right now, I believe, and I believe it was getting worse. And we wanted to show our kids uh, a better way of living. And I, and I believe New Zealand is what that is. What that is. You've certainly timed it um, in an interesting fashion. You've arrived here in New Zealand, in <laughs> a region that is one of the yeah. least vaccinated in New Zealand in the height of this Delta outbreak. You're currently in a small right. town in Taranaki, a region that has many small towns. Can you, can you compare the experience right. of small towns in Taranaki from your time here with the experience of those small and rural communities in the United States? Uh, very similar, actually. Uh, I think the issue comes down, number one, to understanding and having the access to the education, um, specifically to the vaccine of what is considered safe and what is not and what are the risks and what are the stated risks that don't exist from whatever misinformation exists, but it's with limited information. The tone of how the disease takes over can be very similar, um, and it comes down to accessibility. Um, small towns in America didn't have accessibility. They didn't have ways to get the vaccine. Maybe they didn't have the understanding of what the vaccine was for or how it worked. And so I could see the same thing happening here, where if they don't have the access, then they're not really being served properly. And I think if they have the access, if that means vans coming out and providing the vaccine and families being vaccinated together to, um, to, to appreciate the cultural differences and realize that we're all just trying to help 
not just ourselves from getting a disease, but also helping each other not get mm -hmm. the disease and actually stop it and turn it into maybe a bad flu season as opposed to a nationwide pandemic, it's a big difference and it can be done. Um, but it's very similar actually, because we saw, we saw small communities in the U.S. just devastated by lack of access or maybe an unwillingness. Um, and it would just, they're like, oh, it's not gonna reach our little town, and then it does. And a lot of people got sick and a lot of people died. Mm. Coming in here with a slightly different perspective, how well prepared do you think the New Zealand health system is for this outbreak? I, I sort of, it's kind of an interesting perspective actually, because if, if I was to go back two years, essentially when the pandemic was starting in America, and we could say, what would we, what would we have done differently? We didn't have testing, we didn't have vaccines, we didn't know how to manage it, we didn't even know what the illness looked like. And when people were coming in, we were just as clueless about it as anybody else. We kind of got to know it. And then two years into it, we saw what we probably could have done, but instead of surviving, we could have been on top of it. I think New Zealand is prepared because you have the vaccine, you have testing. If New Zealand citizens decide not to get the vaccine, I think it's the choice of saying, well, then it starts taking over our country and then we lose our freedoms and we, loo we lose the ability to just go outside and we, we lose the ability to walk around without masks on. Mm. And it, it really is a choice that you're saying, if I went back in time, New Zealand is perfectly timed with what they have to be able to really cut this off at the legs before it gets the legs that it got in America and really around the world. Because you've seen what the rest of the world has done either well or not well, and probably less well. And you can watch and see, if we do this, if, if we just get the vaccine, if we keep people from getting as sick as they've gotten all over the world, we prevent a lot of deaths and we protect our country, we protect our economy, mm. and it's all there to be able to do. Um, and hopefully in doing so, then you're also saving the health system, which even in uh, a presumed country that has everything, our health systems were overwhelmed and we ran out of stuff and we didn't have the stuff to take care of patients and the stuff you saw in New York was really happening in a lot of places and all we could do was survive. So I think New Zealand is primed to be in the position to say if we push the vaccine like is trying to be done now, we're not just closing the borders and trying to keep it out, we're actually treating what's already gotten in because it's here so let's keep it from getting worse. Mm. And from someone who has been in different cities that have experienced quite different pandemics, what would be your advice to policymakers when it comes to restrictions and internal regional borders in New Zealand in the coming weeks and months? I think you give... This is a hard thing because I, I think the, 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 the smartest thing and the ideal thing is to say, keep it closed until we reach a point that everybody has been vaccinated, or at least 90%, which I think is a very real number, because there's certain anti-vaxxers and those against it for all misguided reasons that aren't gonna change their minds. But there's a lot of people who are hesitant just from the lack of information that you can convince. And then that 90% number is very reasonable. And epidemiologically speaking, you're doing what a vaccine is supposed to do, which is prevent a disease from spreading worse and actually building up a tolerance within a community. So you're doing the right things. 
lockdown is hard, and we were locked down for a long time in the U.S., and people start to fight it, and then you just find that there's even more resistance to whatever next policy is going to come on. If we maintain the levels where we are now, but with an understanding that we can fix it if you go ahead and get the vaccine, then you win the battle. And then maybe the level three then becomes level two and then our level, you're starting to just kind of ease the restrictions so that people can get out. Mm. But I think you're giving the New Zealanders a chance to say, we're in a position where we can beat this, we can get on top of it and we can then ease all of our restrictions if you're willing to do it. Because if you don't, and you almost give them a chance and say, if you do in a couple months and everybody's vaccinated, life goes on. But if you don't, suddenly we're in lockdown and just like Auckland and people can't go out, they can't see friends, they can't work their jobs, the kids can't go to school. There's just nothing but bad things that can happen if you just decide to not do what you know can be done very easily. That is Dr. Jeff Rickard speaking to me from Harwater. Coming up, Queenstown looks to attract a few more high achievers. Tech titans, I call them, that live here. The man who invented Adobe is just down the road. The man who invented the cloud lives just over there. Kia ora te hoki mai. Welcome back. Tourist operators in Queenstown are anxiously watching the lockdown in the north. They're banking on welcoming Aucklanders over summer. But while tourism is still an essential earner in the region, the pandemic has forced a shift of focus. Here's Fina Owen. A cruisy afternoon by the lake. It's the tail end of the school holidays, and this is what Queenstown locals call quiet. But just a little way back from the lake, Queenstown Town Centre is a construction site. Yes, there's an air of optimism as the town rushes to complete its beautification and transport hub project in time for summer. The fantastic thing is with government support we've been able to get this work underway when it's been a bit quiet. It would be really difficult to try and do this amount of work within the town centre uh, when we're at our peak in terms of tourism. So we've taken the opportunity. Beneath the Remarkables, another subdivision is nearing completion. Construction projects, big and small, are crying out for workers. We're in desperate need for more qualified guys across the board, and that's not just builders, but that's also engineers, architects, cleaners, you name it. A lot of people from outside of uh, Queenstown, like the areas of Auckland, Dunedin, Wellington, Australia, and a lot of expats coming back as well, trying to secure a, a block of dirt. While the construction industry is going full steam ahead, back in town, retail is down on last year by up to 20%. Peter Harris is the council's economic development manager. And you can see it in the spend. You mean, as soon as Auckland locks down, the spend just drops away. Queenstown's efforts pre-COVID to diversify beyond tourism are now being stepped up. We have tech titans, I call them, that live here. The man who invented Adobe is just down the road. The man who invented the cloud lives just over there. 
This is Olivia Wensley, CEO of Startup Queenstown Lakes. The former litigation lawyer sees a bright future beyond just tourism. The average worker contributes $70,000 a year to the GDP. In tourism. In tourism. And so the average tech worker brings in $400,000. So it's quite, quite a big difference. The other thing is that tourism is very extractive as an industry, and tech is actually very low carbon. So it's actually a great counterbalance to diversity far region. Nearby is just one of many budding startups in town. Hedy Mayers, who is a chef, has joined Australian Owen Darby in a biotech startup, using hemp to suck up heavy metals in soils. We have a, a growing population now um, of uh, tech companies, which is um, awesome. Biotech, agritech, medtech, filmtech are all here, but some doubt a tech economy will fill the current tourism void. I would disagree that it's going to be a long process to get us set up because in the last 18 months alone has been incredible. The amount of growth and action that we've seen has been unbelievable. Meanwhile, the government has approved the fast tracking of the consent process for some big projects in the region. Well, I'm standing beside the Luggett Wanaka Highway, and if the owners of this piece of land get their resource consents, then what we'll eventually see behind here is a massive film park employing up to 1,200 people. Wanaka and Arrowtown haven't been hit as hard as Queenstown. It's recently seen an influx of people moving here and working from home. Economist Benji Patterson moved from Wellington to Arrowtown before COVID. Yeah. And that's one of the silver linings of the pandemic if it enables a trend of people to be able to remotely work in our district and bring in much higher incomes that can ultimately then flow through back into the local economy. The whole community now is on board with the fact that we need to have a more balanced economy. Before COVID, that we, we sort of knew about that and we were doing some stuff, but now there's nobody in this town that you'd talk to that would disagree. Really high-powered people going, this is, we've got to fix this. It's never going to be a good outcome when we realise we've had all our eggs in one basket for too long. And Queenstown is not all talk. Rising from the giant hole behind us will be a five-storey tech, education and start-up complex. It symbolises everything that we're trying to achieve in the Queenstown Lakes region and that's to make it the next big tech destination in New Zealand. You've got a name for that. I do, you? I do. My nickname for it is Silicon South. <laughs> <laughs> Fina Owen reporting from the mighty Waipounamu there. Queenstown is lobbying the government to get special visas and MIQ spaces for tech entrepreneurs and workers who want to set up business here. Coming up, after 25 years of MMP, the times, they are a-changing. People smoked in the lobbies. Um, there were big drinking schools and card schools that went on. You know, it was not at all unusual for members to be inebriated in the house. Twenty-five years ago this week, New Zealand ushered in a brand new political system. First past the post got the boot via referendum. Kiwi voters chose the German-inspired mixed-member proportional system, MMP. There have been some ups and downs. As Sandra Lee predicted, MMP has meant more Māori in Parliament, more women too. 
And in an exclusive interview, TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much-Mackay sat down with the Speaker of the House, Trevor Mallard, and began by asking how he felt when MMP began. I was quite concerned. I was opposed to MMP. Um, I thought it were, would result in the sort of tail wagging the dog, and I thought the governments couldn't do policy. Uh, and now I look at the Parliament and I see a place which looks much more like New Zealand. It's much more representative, uh, gender, ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation. Uh, I think it's a better place. We get, um, we get better debate, we get more informed opinions uh, through having that representative Parliament. The tail has wagged the dog though, is that worth it to have more representation here? There's been a certain amount of that, but what it means is that they haven't been the wild swings in policy that you might have got in the past. Uh, I think if you go through the 70s, the Muldoon times, the, the Douglas times, you got you got big changes in policy, which, all of which went too far. Uh, and uh, I think having something which is just sort of slows down some of the change and tries to build consensus around it is, is something which I think is really good. With the greatest of respect, you've been in politics for long enough to have seen the change from first past the post to MMP. Over that 25 years, what's changed in this place? Well, I think the people have changed. Uh, when I was first here, we had the, the tail end of the Second World War veterans. Uh, it was an old boys, a gentleman's club. It physically worked like it. Uh, people smoked in the lobbies. Um, there were big drinking schools and card schools that went on. You know, it was not at all unusual for members to be inebriated in the House. I think there's been, uh, and it's, it's partly gender and it's partly age and the society has changed. Uh, and as a re result of that, I think Parliament's become quite a lot more professional. You talk about it being like a club. There are still really important traditions with Parliament and obviously the role of Parliament is really important. How do you balance that with bringing Parliament into the modern age with things like ditching ties and having babies being fed in the debating chamber. How do you balance that out? Well, I think what you've got to look at is the purpose and the big purpose, from my, my point of view, two, two of them. One is to pass good le legislation and the other is to hold government to account. To do that, you want to have a good range of people in there and you want them to be comfortable. Uh, and if we can do that, uh, then I think uh, the traditions are not quite as important. I think it's really good uh, how, or what used to happen more than happens now, is when people come in and they listen to a speech before them and they reply to some of the comments and that, and they listen to the replies that come back from them, where you, where you have a genuine interchange. The thing that I, I detest is people who read research unit notes. You know, it's, it's not original. They're not putting their own thought into it, uh, and it doesn't add anything to the to the value of the place. Much better to table the notes and leave uh, than than have pe person after person read them out. You talked there about being comfortable. Why is that important? I think for the place to be properly representative, um, we've got to have people who are relaxed uh, and. 
um, and, and generally saying what they think. And that means um, you know, sometimes you've got to leave some of the traditions, but it also means on occasions you've got to be a bit more flexible than some of the parties or than all of the parties uh, appear to be at the moment. And I think there's, there's, a, there's a tension there. And, and I think, especially as far as the, the party's influence on what people say in Parliament, I think that's got worse, not better over time. It's tough, though, because, I mean, think about where we're doing this interview. We're in a dark wood-panelled room with lush carpet. If you go into the debating chamber, you can't help feel the weight of history and the people who have spoken there before you. How do you make people feel relaxed who have come off the farm or have come from um, way down south? How do you do that? Well, I, th I think part of it is how we do the induction at the beginning when they come in. And I think we've got much better at doing that now than we have. I think that both the last induction um, and the one before have been better than any in the past. And I've had a lot of uh, positive comments about it. Uh, and, and part of it, I think, we can, you know, we can do, do from the chair and we can do f as colleagues. We can value what people have to say. We can you know, make them feel welcome. And you know, I every now and again send a note to a member saying, you know, that was a point I hadn't heard before. You know, really good that it was expressed. And if we can keep trying to make uh, people feel comfortable and, and prepared to say things which are a little bit different, uh, then I think the, the, the place will be better. I mean, it's not, a, you know, it's not an easy place uh, to come into, um, and, and as we get a wider range of society uh, here, it's probably even sort of less easy at the beginning. Uh, but what we are seeing is that more and more around a Pacific Caucus, around ethnic caucuses, uh, people are um, across the parliament um, more welcoming within groups. Um, I mean, clearly, uh, women have been doing that uh, across the parliament much more uh, in the past 20 years than they did in the 20 years before. Is Parliament a safe place to work? Uh, I, I think it's a lot safer than it used to be. I think we've made a we've made a lot of progress in the way we contract people to work here. But is it safe to work here? Um, I, I I think it is it is a lot safer, and I I don't think you can do an absolute. Uh, on that yet. Uh, it is sort of very much dependent on developing a culture and I'm not prepared to say that we're ever at the point where I'm totally comfortable with it. Uh, you know, we, we know that when you embark on change it takes, you know, it takes time uh, in order to make that change. But we do have uh, support for people when there's problems. We have a 24-hour line. We have contracting systems which now put uh, much more obligation on the parliamentary service and on members uh, to make sure that they obey the, the code of conduct. And With the allegations and the staffer here at Parliament which have been well canvassed, did you drop the ball in the way you handled that? Um, I'm restricted legally from making any comment uh, on that and I'm not going to breach that. Leaving that there then, what are the challenges of making Parliament a safe place to work and a culture that people want to work in? 
Uh, part of it is with members, um, big range of members who come in. You know, we've got a you know a member who a new member who was in charge of a you know a, a multi multi million dollar uh, organisation. Who's and we, that you're talking about? Chris Luxon. Oh right, yeah. And 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 we've got other people who have never supervised anyone in a job at all, uh, and. Um, and so some people have very different expectations and I think up until recently we were very, very poor at, at helping them learn how to do that. Switching to your role as speaker, sitting in the big chair, um, that probably the image that a lot of people are used to seeing with you now. You are Labour through and through, it's running through your veins. Is it possible for you to be neutral? Uh, I work really hard at it. Um, the, the parallel that I that I take is when I sort of ref my kids' sport or run the run the as a touch judge for the you know one year matter, which I you know which I do relatively often. You, you always try and slightly compensate by favouring the opponents. You know, you give. Do you, do you, you think you, you give, do that though? I, I think I do. I think so I do. So you think you give um, National a bit of an easier ride than the government? I, I watch the you know the question time again most days, and I quite often make a list of the things that I could have done, or maybe even should have done, uh, and. And it, you know, I mean, it, it is always harder to be in opposition. You know, I've spent far too long there myself, and and I know that you often feel hard done by. And and you know, we we see the complaints. I've seen complaints about every speaker. Yeah, I mean, I've, in my time, I've seen um, Margaret Wilson and Lockwood Smith and David Carter, and you, as well as yourself, and you definitely seem to get more than your fair share of complaints. Do you think you have moments where? That, that labour side comes out for you? No, I, I, I don't. I don't. Wouldn't I know you work hard at it. Yeah, but sure, sure. Yeah. And, and, and there are and there are a lot of complaints, and they are persistent. And uh, and I do try and ease off. I think I think the complaints are basically because sometimes I over officiate. I mean, I, I sort of yeah, and I and I smile. It's almost yeah, like a referee who gets too much into the game, blows yeah. too many penalties, rather than let the advantage flow. And when I'm when I'm when I'm having better times, uh, then generally I'm intervening less. But what that means is I'm allowing more offences to go uh, unstopped. And then quite often when you do that and you actually apply the rules, people get upset. I mean, do you think you have the right temperament? To be speaker, you had a rep for being a fierce debater and a scrapper. Have you had to tone it down? Well, of course I've had to tone it down. You, you, I mean, you, you change roles. It's like, you know, using the rugby analogy, you know, sort of going from the front row to being a referee. You know, you're out of the, you know, the dark and dirty stuff and, and into the... You're still the, back at the front row sometimes, though? Um, not yet, okay. you know. Um, I... I uh, and, and, and the... And you know, while you know you hear a lot of loud complaints, especially on the tiles, I get a lot of much more intensive complaints in this room from my former colleagues. I mean, if 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 you think the National Party think that the most hard done by, I don't think you're right. I think the more intense and sometimes the more accurate complaints uh, come from people from the caucus that I used to be in. What are you going to do next? You're heading off to be a High Commissioner? Well, well I, I keep on hearing these sort of rumours that I'm about to be sent to so London. What's true? London, London, London or Washington. Yeah. Uh, my wife says that I've probably got the diplomatic skills for the Ross dependency. <laughs>
Um, no, I've got, I've, got, I've got no, no current plans for leave. Um, I mean, I know in my time there's never been a speaker who's done two full terms. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have any current plan to retire uh, before the election or even at the election. You're you interested know? in London or interested in Washington? Um, I'm, I think it's most unlikely uh, that people would consider that I had the diplomatic skills to do that job. I think you've probably highlighted some of it just now. <laughs> <laughs> that is One News political editor Jessica Much Mackay with the speaker Trevor Mallard. Kuomotu, that is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And na mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thank you for your messages. Thanks to my Q&A colleagues. Kia hou maru te noho. Stay safe. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.